Once upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered weak and weary, over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore, while I nodded nearly napping, suddenly there came a tapping, as of someone gently rapping, rapping at my chamber door. Please enter my putrid pupils and welcome to the bride's house of waxing intellectual, the podcast that dives deep into the Black Lagoon of one horror novel and the movie or movies that are based on it. This is the Bride of the Creatures podcast familiar and I am your headmistress, the bride. So find an empty desk and ready your quills as our first lesson begins with the Amityville Horror. We begin with an introduction to the Amityville House at 112 Ocean Avenue and the real-life events of the DeFeo murders, as there would be no book without them. The house located on traditional Shinnecock Indigenous land that would come to be known as the Amityville House was built in 1925 and was 4,000 square feet of Dutch colonial architectural style. A sign reading, High Hopes, hung on the property at the time Ronald Joseph DeFeo Sr., aged 44, bought the property for himself and his family in July of 1964. The DeFeo family consisted of Ronald Sr., known as Big Ronnie, his wife, Louise Marie Brigante DeFeo, aged 43, his children, Ronald Joseph Jr., Ronnie for short, was aged 24, Don Teresa, 18, Allison Louise, 13, Mark Gregory, 12, and John Matthew, aged 9. To neighbors and friends, they appeared to be the perfect Catholic family. No one would have suspected this beautiful family to end up in blood-soaked beds in the dead of night, except for maybe their son, Ronnie. Inside the home, domestic abuse and violent outbursts were the norm. Ronald DeFeo Jr., or Ronnie, took the brunt of his father's aggression. To make matters worse, Ronnie was overweight and bullied in school. Ronnie ran away from home several times but always ended up returning to the tumultuous environment that was his home. Teachers were often disturbed by Ronnie's violent outbursts. He would throw chairs and other classroom supplies. In between junior high and high school, Ronnie's family did seek help by sending him to a psychiatrist named Dr. Freed. These were very unhelpful appointments as Dr. Freed aimed to treat Ronnie exclusively with clinical methods of therapy rather than medication. It seems Ronnie never tried to implement Dr. Freed's methods and would stop going to these sessions around the age of 16, turning instead to drugs and alcohol as a means to cope with the continued violence at home and school. In future interviews, Ronnie would recount one occasion of his father beating his mother. Ronnie pulled a shotgun on Big Ronnie, saying, Leave that woman alone. He pulled the trigger and the gun jammed. The family would act as if this had never happened. Perhaps, just maybe, if they had stopped to address this incident, the following living nightmare may not have happened. The murders took place in the early morning of Tuesday, November 12, 1974. However, no one would take notice until the evening of the same day. Ronnie was at Henry's Bar, colloquially known as the Witch's Brew. After several rounds at the bar with his friend Bobby, Ronnie went home, only to return a little while later, screaming in hysterics, My mother and father were shot! Ronnie was quickly placed in protective custody after expressing his belief that Tony Mazio, 
a mafia hitman, killed his family over financial disputes. Now, this may seem out of left field. However, Mazio had been a close and personal friend of the DeFeo family, even living with them for a brief period of time. A few years ago, the friendship had been severed when Ronnie and Mazio got into a huge fight over money. One of the investigators at the scene stated, It was like an Alfred Hitchcock movie. They all lay there peaceful and on their faces, all in their nightclothes. Every member of the DeFeo family, with the exception of Ronnie, lay dead in their beds, face down, hands above their heads. Upon further questioning, Ronnie's story quickly fell apart, and over the years, he would change his story over and over again. He would recant certain statements, adding new details with each new version. Bobby, Ronnie's friend from the bar, told police of Ronnie's gun collection, which consisted of a silencer. Upon removal of the bodies, a .35 caliber rifle casing was found in the mattress, consistent with a rifle that Ronnie had recently purchased. The generally agreed upon explanation for the bodies being found in the same positions was that the family had been drugged before being positioned and executed. The neighbors all reported that they didn't hear any gunshots, but could hear the DeFeo dog barking at around 3 a.m. The coroner's report placed the time of death between 2.30 and 3.30 a.m. the morning of November 12th. Ronnie was in police custody and confessed to the murders of his six family members on November 14, 1974, reenacting the way in which he murdered them, although he offered no motive to his crime. Ronnie led police to where he had hid the evidence, consisting of a gun case, pillow cases with bloody clothes stuffed inside, eight spent rifle cartridges, and the murder weapon. Multiple statements Ronnie made in the years following contradict one another. He often insisted that he had an accomplice to the murders but the known evidence all pointed to Ronnie alone as the sole individual responsible. While he has never offered a consistent motive, one of the explanations he provided was that he heard demonic voices telling him to kill his family. He would later claim that this was a scheme concocted by his lawyer, William Weber, who was angling for an insanity plea. Despite Weber's attempts, Ronnie was found guilty of six counts of second-degree murder by a grand jury. He was declared sane by virtue of the fact that he had disposed of the evidence that connected him to the crime. He was sentenced to six consecutive life sentences. Ronnie DeFeo Jr. would live out the rest of his life serving his sentence at the Sullivan Correctional Institution and died at age 69 on March 12, 2021. Just over a year from when the DeFeo family was murdered, the Letts family purchased 112 Ocean Avenue in December of 1975 for a bargain price of $80,000. And so our twisted fable begins with a book overview of The Amityville Horror, written by Jay Anson and published in 1977. The preface tries to frame the story as completely factual. For example, it states that there are three main views in the modern Western world in which we can approach this phenomena. One is the scientific, two the superstitious, and three religious. J. Anson states the phenomena reported in this book do happen and to ordinary people and families who are neither exhibitionists nor attention seekers. This may be true but does not accurately describe the Lutzes 
as they proceeded to go on a world tour, leaving their children at various boarding schools to partake in multiple TV interviews to recount their ghostly experience at 112 Ocean Avenue. But more on that later. In the prologue, Anson recounts the night of November 13, 1974, in which Ronnie DeFeo, aged 23, shoots his parents, two brothers, and two sisters in their sleep. This event would enable the Letzes to afford such a grandiose home for only $80,000. The prologue tells us that the Letzes were not superstitious, and yet abandoned the home, along with all their belongings, only four weeks after moving in. We are introduced to our main characters of the story, the Lutz family. Kathy is age 30, her husband George, 28, their children, Daniel age 9, Christopher age 7, and Missy age 5. A portrait is painted of a young lower middle class family who are offered the bargain of a lifetime to upgrade their lives. Many pages are spent discussing prices, mortgages, lawyers, down payments, and the extra 400 cash George threw in for all the original DeFeo furniture. There's a very detailed explanation of the 112 Ocean Avenue property and includes blueprints of the house. The Letzes move in on December 18, 1975. It is then that we are introduced to two more characters, Father Frank Mancuso and Harry, the family's dog, a Malamute cross. Kathy had asked Father Mancuso to come over to bless the home. On his arrival, the family is outside playing and doing yard work. The father allows himself into the home and proceeds to bless the house. It is then that the father hears a booming voice telling him to get out. He leaves immediately and falls very ill. The family is not aware of this occurrence. It was not until after the Letzes fled the home and the publicity began to surround them that they would hear of the effects the house had had on Father Mancuso. Later that same day, the family is startled when Harry, chained and penned up, jumps the fence of his enclosure, strangling himself on his collar and chain. George runs out and saves Harry just in time. On December 19th, George is woken for the first time at 3.15 a.m., the time of death of the DeFeo family. He hears knocking at the front door and sees the door to the boathouse swinging open and shut. George has trouble going back to sleep, worrying and anxious with the weight of a new mortgage, his second marriage, three kids, and his company's financial failures. When he finally wakes the next morning, he is irritable and yells at the kids for being too loud. Over the next few days, tension builds between the happy couple who now snipe at each other. For example, Kathy becomes irritated with George for not offering to help her bring in the groceries, even though she's obviously struggling with the load. George stops going into work and instead obsessively checks the boathouse and tends to the fire in the living room fireplace. On the fourth night, for the first time ever, the couple beat the children with straps and wooden spoons over a cracked window in the playroom. On December 22nd, Kathy feels a ghostly embrace and feels oddly comforted by it. Their toilets turn black and smell horrible. The sewing room becomes filled with black flies, and George continues his pattern of waking at 3.15, finding the front door ripped from the hinges on one such occasion. The children are found to all be sleeping on their stomachs, which is unusual for them, 
and is the exact same position the DeFeo family was found in at the time of death. Kathy also finds her crucifix hanging upside down on the wall. Meanwhile, Father Mancuso is very sick with the flu and cannot shake the bad feeling about the Letzes being in that house. On December 25th, Kathy wakes, screaming, She was shot in the head! Kathy and George finally share with each other the strange goings-on in their home. George checks the boathouse, and when he looks back, he sees Missy in the window, with a giant pig that has glowing red eyes standing behind her. When he runs up to her room to investigate, he finds her asleep in her bed, but her rocking chair is moving back and forth, all on its own. The kids are banned from entering the sewing room, as Father Mancuso has called and told them not to go in there. Missy explains to her brothers that this is because Jody is in there, an imaginary pig friend that only she can see. On December 26, 1975, George is sick with diarrhea, and Harry does not seem as alert as he usually is. Kathy is stressed over her empty food shelves and having to spend money on groceries. They are preparing to attend Kathy's brother's wedding. Her brother, Jimmy, arrives at the Lutz home and at some point in the visit loses the $1,500 cash from his pocket that was for the wedding caterers. The money is never found, and George generously offers to write the caterer a check to calm down the very distraught groom. A few days later, Kathy is organizing canned food in the basement closet when one of the heavy cans cracks a shelf. The wood paneling behind the shelf bent outwards, as if there was a space behind the wall. Kathy could see through the slit of the broken panel that there was an empty room behind the wood paneling. She called George down, who took apart the rest of the wall to reveal a secret room located under the stairs. The room was completely red and smelled of blood. George catches a fleeting glimpse of a face in the wood paneling. A few days later, he would be able to put the name of Ronnie DeFeo to that face. Later, George would discover a well under the floorboards of the secret room. George goes to the local pub called The Witch's Brew, where the bartender looks startled upon seeing George and explains that he looks familiar, meaning he looks like Ronnie DeFeo, as someone had pointed out earlier in the book. While George is at the pub, Kathy is in the kitchen and out of the corner of her eye, sees through the foyer into the living room and catches a glimpse of their two-foot-tall lion statue moving all on its own. Kathy shakes it off as a trick of her imagination. George, upon returning home, trips over the lion statue. He angrily curses whoever had moved it into the way. Later, teeth marks appear on George's ankle from where he had tripped over the lion. The lion statue is then moved out of the sight into the sewing room upstairs. It is the room in which Kathy's aunt, upon visiting a few days ago, had said, felt bad. Kathy's aunt is a nun and had left the house in a hurry, saying she felt sick. George, triggered by the worries about the strange events at his house, goes to the daily newspaper called Newsday to try and find the history of his home and the DeFeo family that had lived there. It is then that George discovers the history of his house, that the DeFeo murders took place at 3.15 a.m., that the house was built on ancient Shimcock land, they changed the name of the tribe for the book for some reason, 
The land is believed to be infested by demons and that a warlock named John Ketchum practiced witchcraft on the land. Father Mancuso's condition worsens as he begins to develop red sores on his shoulders. Blisters appear on his hands and his ongoing fever increases dangerously. On January 1st, the Letzes are woken up by wind howling through their bedroom. The windows have mysteriously opened and a blustery cold wind had ripped the blankets off their bodies. The bedroom door swings back and forth, caught in the draft of the wind. George slams the windows shut. They could still hear wind blowing through their home and when George runs out, he finds the previously shut door to the sewing room open with its windows open as well, allowing the wind to blow through their home. George struggles to slam the windows shut. The couple run to check the children. The boys are all right on the third floor above them, but across the hall from the sewing room, Missy's room was blistering hot, and both Kathy and George see her rocking chair moving on its own. Kathy grabs her sleeping daughter from her bed and runs down to the living room. While sitting on the living room sofa, Kathy sees red eyes staring at her from a dark window across the room. She screams and George runs out to investigate finding enormous cloven hoof prints in the snow. George says that they look like those of an enormous pig. The next day in the kitchen, Kathy again experiences a strange phenomenon. She smells the familiar comforting smell of perfume and then feels as if she is being roughly grabbed by the wrists by an unseen presence on either side of her. It is as if two entities are fighting for control over her body. Over the next couple days, the Letzes struggle to find answers to the strange goings-on at their house. They reach out once again to Father Mancuso for help. He refuses to set foot in the house again, as he is still very sick and believes the cause of his condition to be the evil of the house. After hanging up the phone, Father Mancuso is plagued with guilt for not doing more and decides to perform a remote blessing of the house from the safety of the church. During the blessing, he smells human feces, which he knows from his studies in demonology is often associated with the presence of the devil. On January 3rd, while discussing the very real possibility that their house is haunted, the Lutz couple walks into the living room to find that the lion statue has somehow been moved back into the living room from the sewing room upstairs. The statue is too heavy to conceive of having been moved by the children. While sleeping that night, George is awakened by the sound of a marching band going through the living room downstairs. However, as soon as his feet hit the bottom stair, it stops. Upon re-entering his bedroom, he finds Kathy levitating above the bed. He pulls her down and covers her back up with blankets, and she hardly stirs. Father Mancuso, growing more and more concerned for the Lutz's safety, confides in Chancellors Ryan and Nuncio higher-ups at the church. They forbid the father from ever entering the home again. Its effects are too great on him. They take the father's concerns seriously and make a plan to refer the Lutzes to a parapsychologist named Dr. Ryan. They inform Father Mancuso that Dr. Ryan would be able to visit 112 Ocean Avenue and conduct a thorough investigation under four main sciences. Three of the sciences come under ESP extrasensory perceptions that include mental telepathy, clairvoyance, and precognition. 
The fourth area is psychokinesis, where objects move on their own. Later in the book, George will have set up an appointment with Dr. Ryan, but the family will leave the home before the investigation could take place. Meanwhile, George seeks advice from a medium named Francine, who is the girlfriend of a close friend and co-worker. Out of nowhere, she suggests George look for a well on the property, as she believes the spirits could be coming from there. George hadn't mentioned that there was a well in the secret room under the basement stairs, and instead asks her why spirits would come from a well. Francine explains that underground wells can be a direct passage to the underworld, and even if he tried to close it, all it takes is a tiny crack, and it can climb out whenever it wants to. She did not elaborate on what it was. That same night, Father Mancuso receives a troubling message from the young priest who was with him when he tried to drive back to the Letzes and lost control of the car. The young priest says he received a phone call from someone who would not identify themselves, but told him to tell the priest not to come back. When the young priest had expressed his confusion, the voice said, The priest you helped. The young priest could only think of Father Mancuso. Father Mancuso pressed the priest to tell him exactly what the voice had said. The young priest told him the voice said, Tell the priest not to come back or he'll die. Francine visits 112 Ocean Avenue and upon arrival claims she feels the souls of two lost individuals, an old man and an old lady. She refuses to enter the basement as the vibes are too strong down there. She enters the sewing room and becomes lost in a trance-like state. She begins to speak in a male voice. The voice from within, Francine tells them that the house needs to be exercised. Upon returning to consciousness, Francine says the room holds one of the two spirits she had initially felt in the house. This soul tried to commit suicide. Kathy and George attempt to bless the house themselves. As they go from room to room, they hear a humming sound that swells into a crescendo of various voices screaming, Will you stop? Father Mancuso calls the Letzes to tell them what the chancellors have decided is the best course of action. From this phone call, the priest discovers that the paranormal events have continued and are beginning to escalate. He warns George not to perform blessings of their own accord, as things have already gotten way out of control. Their phone call is cut short when they hear Kathy from within the house shrieking at the top of her lungs. George runs to discover that there is green gelatinous goo oozing from the ceiling to the floor. That evening, Kathy tells George that she wants them to leave the house and go stay with her mother. This enrages George, who screams that they won't leave. They have too much invested in this house to abandon it. The children cower by their mother, afraid of George. Kathy thinks to herself that he has the look of a man possessed. The next morning, Kathy wakes to find her whole body covered in angry red welts. It looks as if she has been burned all over with a red-hot fire poker. Kathy lay in bed the whole day, her body too sore to move. It took till the end of the day for the mysterious welts to fade. Over the next few days, the house continues to plague the Lutzes, freezing the children almost to death as their previously locked windows are all found open in the night an icy wind billowing through their bedrooms. Danny has an open window fall on his fingers. 
The window refuses to let go of Danny despite George's best efforts to lift it. Eventually, Danny gets his fingers out and is rushed to the hospital. Miraculously, his fingers are not broken. Kathy's panic swells as Missy, her youngest daughter, tells her that her imaginary friend Jody has told her of a little boy who lived in her room. The little boy got sick and died, and he wants Missy to stay and play with him forever. George and Kathy's concern for the children's safety mounts until the night of January 13th. George can hear Danny and Chris's beds moving and bumping around their room. George tries to get out of bed, but finds himself unable to. It is as if he is paralyzed. Danny and Chris run into their parents' bedroom, screaming that there is something in their room. George runs to see what it is, and he lays eyes on a white hooded figure at the top of the stairs. At this, finally, the whole family runs to leave the house, just as the front door is blown from its hinges. They drive away, never to return, just 28 days after moving in. The book now jumps ahead to February 18, 1976. Marvin Scott of Channel 5 News puts together a team of psychics, demonologists, and parapsychologists to spend one night at 112 Ocean Avenue to investigate. During a seance, a psychic becomes ill and has to leave. Others report feeling a cold sensation. Lorraine Warren is quoted saying, It is right from the bowels of the earth. But there will be more on Lorraine Warren later the demonologist made famous by The Conjuring films. There is a note from Jay Anson at the very end. All the events in this book are true. The book's strength lies in its pacing and patterns. George consistently wakes at 3.15 a.m., checks the boathouse, and tends to the fire in the living room, although he grows increasingly more irritable and aggressive as the book goes on. Father Mancuso's illness gets progressively worse the more invested he becomes in the Lutzes and their home. The subtle moments of unexplained phenomena within these routines is what makes this book so effective as a horror. Small moments of horror increase and continue to mount within the patterns until they outnumber the moments of comfortable routine. They build on one another with each chapter, increasing the dread and uneasiness the reader feels. The feeling that it is all building to something, something horrendous is going to happen next. It's going to happen to the Lutzes, to Father Mancuso. The reader isn't sure what will happen, but we feel it coming. Most people feel comfortable with routine. We go to work at a certain time, eat lunch at a certain time, and go to bed at a certain time. We wake up to repeat this pattern. What we don't expect within these routines is to see things that aren't there to feel an embrace by an unseen presence, and it is in this unknown that the terror lies. As the book goes on, each character is experiencing different unique areas of the house that are unusual. It's as if each person holds a piece of the puzzle that makes up the Amityville house that they haven't put together yet. This demonstrates the lack of family communication within the Lutz household. Each person is absorbed and wrapped up in their own trauma to take much notice of what is going on with the others. They only begin to communicate with one another when things have spiraled out of control, and by then it is too late. There is nothing else to do except run. The validity of the Letz's claims that this is all true will be analyzed in part two. 
So join us next time for part two of the Amityville Horror, in which we will analyze the cultural context of the book. But for now, that is all for The Bride's House of Waxing Intellectual. Thank you to everyone involved in making this podcast a success, including Joey Grzecki for editing and production, Rob Grzecki for composing the theme song, and Alex Lung for photography. All of the many resources used are listed in the podcast description below.